0: I think the thing that would surprise most people is that out of the 10,000 or so occasions that I found when the bells were rung, there are none where they were rung for church services. That's not strictly true. There's one occasion right at the end of my period when they rang for the service for the Assize judges arriving. But for regular Sunday services, change ringing was simply not a part of what happened.
1: Hi, welcome to the Fun with Bells podcast, where I, Kathy Booth, interview novices and some of the most famous ringers in the world as they reveal the mysteries of this heard but often hidden art. Before today's fascinating interview, I'd like to know a bit more about you, what you think of the podcast so far, and if you have any ideas on what we should do differently. If you could please fill in a short survey, it's at bit.ly forward slash FWB in capitals 2020. You can find this on the show notes. So that's again bit.ly forward slash FWB 2020. And now on with the show. We're going to be talking to my guest today mainly about his PhD research, which will be of much interest to bell ringers interested in its history. Gareth Davis started ringing tower bells in his teens, rising to being master of the Cambridge youths and in the winning team for the National 12 Bell Contest three times. At the turn of the century, life took over for a bit with the arrival of children and a flock of sheep. But about 10 years ago, he rekindled his interest in bell and handbell ringing. Gareth, you said you were very slow in your learning to ring. A lot of my listeners are in the early stages of learning to ring and might also feel they're a slow learners. So can you elaborate on that a bit? Because it doesn't sound like you were slow at the end of your learning to ring.
0: I suppose I was lucky in a way. I learned in a tower at Danbury in Essex where they had an extremely good band at the time. But I found bell handling quite a, quite a struggle to start with. It seemed to take me ages to get the hang of bringing two strokes together, and I don't think my style was particularly good. The chap who taught me described me at one point as being like a jellyfish on a piece of elastic, and that's certainly what it felt like to me. And I think not having a very good handling style did hold me back quite a while. And in fact, I used to go to another practice and the tower captain there in the end got so fed up with my rather appalling style that he he kind of retaught me a bit, which helped enormously. But I still don't have a fantastic style, I have to say.
1: But being in a, a winning team for the 12 bell contest, you must have improved it somewhat to get there.
0: Well, I was very lucky, I think, with my ringing, because once I did get the hang of handling and ringing some basic methods, I was ringing with a band in Essex and at university who could essentially ring anything, and they were very generous in their time in helping me to develop. And, of course, you get obsessed with these things as well, so so you put a lot of time into it.
1: Anyway, I wanted to move on to your PhD research. What is it about? What's the title of it to begin with?
0: So the title of my thesis, it keeps changing, but I think the final version is something like The Business of Bell Ringing. How important was it to Cambridge ringers to get paid?
1: why are you doing it?
0: Well, I suppose partly because I retired a few years ago and I wanted something to do that was going to keep my mind active, but also because I'm genuinely interested in trying to understand what ringing was like in the past. We tend to assume that it was like it is now. So most people don't think about getting paid for ringing, except for the occasional wedding, possibly. But From my researches, it seems that if you go back one or 200 years, actually, the payment was quite an important reason why some people rang.
1: And how much did they get paid?
0: My researchers have been looking at Cambridge from about 1724 to 1913. And what it shows is that to start with, they were charging as a band about 10 shillings, half a guinea for for ringing and... That gradually increased through the 18th and 19th centuries until by about 1880, they were usually charging about five guineas a time, obviously shared between the band.
1: That's quite a lot of money in today's money, isn't it?
0: It was the combination of how much they were paid and the number of times they were paid that was interesting. So part of my research has been to try and identify how often the bells were rung. And I'm just looking at the Church of Great St. Mary's in Cambridge. And so far, I've identified about 10,000 occasions when the bells rang, and more than half of those were for paid ringing.
1: Wow. So they got paid quite a lot then.
0: So to give you an example, if we take 1807, which is about in the middle of the period I'm looking at, in the currency of the time, their total income that year was just under £90. Now, if we convert that to today's money, a straight conversion suggests that's around about just under £6,000 today. But that would be just in terms of its purchasing power. Converting from kind of 18th century currency to 21st century is quite difficult. You can look at what it bought, but equally, it's about how much the money they earned would have given them status. So, if we imagine looking at a scale of earnings, earning that amount of money in 1807 would be the equivalent of earning about £80,000 today.
1: So it's pretty substantial.
0: It was, yes, for some of the band, depending on how, on what, what kind of jobs they had and how much they earned from other sources of income.
1: I see. What did they spend the money on?
0: A variety of things. So... The way that the ringing worked in Cambridge right through the period I'm looking at is that they practiced three times a month. So initially on Thursdays, although that later changed to Monday nights, and they'd have three Monday practices. And then the fourth week, whenever that fell, would be their club night. Uh, So there'd be no ringing that evening, but they'd go to their clubhouse, which is always uh, a pub in Cambridge. That changed fairly regularly where they went, sometimes they were fortunate enough to have an innkeeper as one of the band, and they tended to go to that particular inn. And they had a private room there where they kept their box, which had the society's accounts. And essentially, they'd have a a, a jolly evening partly paid for from the money that they collected. And they'd hold business meetings where they decide how they're going to run the society. And that happened every month. And one of the reasons why I'm using Cambridge as the example of looking at this, is that the ringers from 1724 onwards kept very detailed records of all the amounts they earned and all the ringing that they did. So we have a complete record of every financial transaction between 1724 and the end of my period, 1913.
1: So you've got your information mostly from those records then?
0: It's a combination. So they're obviously a fantastic source of information. They don't tell you everything about what the ringers did the church warden accounts give records of the things that the parish paid for and those payments don't actually appear in the ringers records and the reason for that is because they were paid not in cash but in beer so there were a number of parish ringing events every year and these tended to be the ones that were celebrating royal events so there'd be things like the anniversary of the king's accession the king's coronation for most of the period every year the 29th of May was celebrated as the restoration of Charles II to the throne in 1660, and they also regularly rang for bonfire nights, gunpowder plots, and all of those were paid for the parish. But the money was paid to an inn in Cambridge, and then the ringers could go and drink the beer whenever they fancied.
1: So it wasn't unusual for the bells to ring for political events.
0: Not at all, no. No, in fact, the bells would ring for anything pretty much that the ringers got paid for. So one of the really interesting elements of my research that I've discovered is that after 1724, the ringers began to ring more and more regularly for parliamentary elections. It wasn't a new thing after 1724 that they rang for elections before that, but they obviously worked out that it was quite a lucrative source of income after that. And in the first, up to about 1754, they rang occasionally. After 1754, they rang almost for every election that was held in Cambridge. And Cambridge was a peculiar place because there were three constituencies. There were MPs elected for the town. There were other MPs elected for the university, which had two seats until the 1950s. And the county elections were also held there and 18th and 19th century elections could go on for quite a while, several weeks sometimes. So there were lots of opportunities for ringing when the candidates came to town to canvass, when they held dinners for their supporters, and when they were elected during the voting process. So those years when there were elections were the most lucrative for the ringers.
1: Was it the political parties that were paying for the bells then?
0: Absolutely. And the ringers were entirely... Unbothered which party it was, they would often ring for both parties on the same day. And it does make me wonder how people in the town knew which party was being rung for. It's not always clear that they were being asked to do this. One of the peculiarities of 18th and 19th century elections is the way that things got paid for. So essentially, if you provided flags for the candidates or other favours or you rang the bells, it was quite possible to ring first and then ask for the payment afterwards, whether you'd been asked to ring or not. So on a lot of occasions, it's pretty clear that the bell ringers rang and then they presented their bill to the candidates committee afterwards and they nearly always got paid.
1: What happened if they didn't get paid?
0: Uh, they got quite cross. This wasn't a political one, but in in eighteen thirty two, the British Association for the Advancement of Science held its annual meeting in Cambridge, and the ringers rang for that and got paid for it. And then about ten years later, the, the society came again, and the ringers rang, but the society refused to pay them, which resulted in them writing a letter to the newspaper complaining that if they weren't going to get paid for their labors, then they'd probably have to hang up their ropes.
1: When did payments like this stop? Why did it change to the way it is today? So
0: ringing for elections is quite an interesting one, because that came to a grinding halt very, very suddenly in the 1880s. There'd been quite a lot of concern through the century about bribery in parliamentary elections, and there'd been all kinds of measures taken to try and stop it. And for a while, it looked as if bell ringing was going to be included as one of the things that was regarded as, as bribery. So paying the ringers to ring was going to be banned. But in fact, it was never banned. But what happened in the 1880s was that they introduced very severe regulations on the amount of money that could be spent on parliamentary elections by candidates. And the result of that was that all the expenditure on anything unnecessary disappeared. So pretty much immediately after 1882, there was no more ringing for parliamentary elections, simply because the parties weren't prepared to pay for it. And the ringers stopped ringing the moment they stopped getting paid.
1: You mentioned earlier about them spending money on beer. Were there any other things that they spent money on?
0: Yes. So they were interested in making sure that where they were ringing was nice to take part in. So in fact, they bought some oak panelling in the 18th century and had the ringing chamber at Great St Mary's, panelled in oak, which had come from one of the Cambridge colleges. And you can still see that today if you go to Great St Mary's ringing chamber. They also spent quite a lot of money on having peel boards recording their peels. And then there were the kind of more practical things. So there are at least two occasions where they bought a chamber pot for the ringing room, which gives you an idea both of what it was like in an 18th century ringing room and also possibly why there weren't any women ringers at the time. The rest of the money, they distributed monthly in dividends to themselves. So they received payouts from the surplus money that was received. And for some of the ringers, that was quite a significant contribution to their income. They were quite interested in money, actually. There was a huge fad of taking part in lotteries in the 1780s. And the ringers did actually spend quite a lot of cash buying lottery tickets.
1: Did any of them win?
0: None of their tickets won, but they did get paid to ring for the successes of other people in the town. So there was a pub called The Boot where 17 regulars got together and bought some lottery tickets, and they won quite a significant amount of money, nearly £20,000, which is a huge amount of money at the time, and they paid the ringers to celebrate their success by having the bells rung. They were called The Boot Society.
1: Has there been much academic study of bell ringing?
0: Surprisingly, not a huge amount, but an interesting kind of range of reasons why people look at it. So one of the most interesting ones has been that an academic called David Cressy has written a book called Bonfires and Bells, which looks at the pattern of bell ringing to see whether bells rang or not indicated how popular the king or queen at the time were. So it was almost a symbol of support for the monarchy or opposition to the monarchy. And that's quite an interesting kind of measure of of what people felt about the monarchy at the time.
1: What was the conclusion of that?
0: So his conclusion is that there is some indication through the 16th, 17th and 18th century, and the research really stops in about 1720. But he concludes that there was a kind of huge popularity for Queen Elizabeth, far less popularity for some of the Stuarts and then a kind of renewal of enthusiasm after Cromwell's disappearance and Charles II came back. So it's an interesting way in which academics look for evidence of what people are doing to to make a case for their particular area of interest. But people have used evidence of ringing for all kinds of things, so they've looked at it as part of the kind of ritual year, the way that the calendar is organised. They've looked at it as an aspect of 17th and 18th century recreation along with a whole range of other activities. And it got a real boost after the 1960s, when people started thinking that it would be interesting to research what places sounded like, as well as what they might have looked like. So since then, there's been quite a lot of, of interest in recreating the sounds of historic periods. And obviously, bells are a fairly loud part of... The soundscape of historical periods. I mean, one researcher says that the three loudest sounds that would have been heard in an 18th or early 19th century town were thunder, cannon fire, and bells. So they were a very distinctive part of urban life, certainly.
1: What is the most surprising thing that you found?
0: I think the thing that would surprise most people is that out of the 10,000 or so occasions that I found when the bells were rung, there are none where they were rung for church services. That's not strictly true. There's one occasion right at the end of my period when they rang for the service for the assize judges arriving. But for regular Sunday services, change ringing was simply not a part of what happened. So every church in Cambridge employed a sexton or sometimes a specified bell ringer And what they would do is they would chime a single bell before services. And I think in Cambridge, certainly at Great St Mary's, that doesn't seem to have changed until about 1928. So when we talk about bell ringing being part of the service of the church, actually, that's quite a modern view of what they were for. If you'd ask people in the 18th and 19th century, they were kind of announcements of secular activities.
1: What caused that change?
0: Partly, I think that there was a change in the Church of England in terms of it becoming more concerned to be seen as a more overtly religious organization. I mean, parishes in the 18th and 19th century had lots of civic responsibilities in addition to their religious ones. And bell ringing seems to be part of their kind of civic responsibility rather than their religious one. And there's quite a lot of talk about the belfry reform movement in the 19th century, the idea that. Ringers in towers were these terrible, drunken people who smoked in the churchyard, never went to church services, and, and and generally behaved badly. And there's probably an element of truth in that, but it's really more, that's probably how bell ringers had always behaved. And actually, nobody had found that offensive or strange. That was just the way it was. They weren't expected to ring for church services. That wasn't part of what they were there to do. But as the church changed, so the expectations on ringers changed.
1: And you said that bell rings didn't ring in the period you're studying for church services. But what about weddings?
0: They did. Um, Weddings was a very um, lucrative form of ringing for the ringers. Interestingly, they don't seem to have started ringing for weddings until about 1750. And it built up very gradually, but then peaked in the 1820s, and they rang for a lot of weddings. But one of the things that you have to understand about weddings in the 18th and 19th centuries is, is that they were hardly religious events. They weren't regarded as sacrament of the church, and it was only because legislation had required people to be married in church that a lot of people did get married in church. So it's hard to see them as religious services. And the other thing is that the ringing that took place for them, which was frequent, didn't actually happen as part of the service. So all the ringing for weddings in Cambridge happened at Great St Mary's, even though there are 13 parish churches. So it was people, anybody getting married in Cambridge, in whichever church they were getting married, if they wanted the bells rung, they would approach the steeplekeeper at Great St. Mary's, and the ringers would ring the bells for the wedding early in the morning, probably at about six o'clock in the morning. Weddings up until 1886 could only take place in churches between nine o'clock and 12 o'clock. So the ringing didn't happen either in most of the churches where the weddings were happening or at the same time that the wedding was happening. And in fact, about a third of the weddings that the ringers rang for in Cambridge, the wedding wasn't even held in Cambridge. It was a Cambridge person getting married to somebody in some other part of the country.
1: This is a quick break to thank our sponsors, the Association of Ringing Teachers, ART. You can find out more at bellringing.org, where there are resources to support your ringing, to find out how to learn to ring, Or to learn to teach. Now back to the episode. So, how did people get to know what wedding was being rung for?
0: Well, that's a very good question. So, you wake up in the morning and you hear the bells ringing, and what are they ringing for? And I can only assume that people would say, What were the bells ringing for this morning? And somebody would say, Oh, I think it was John Smith, the attorney at law, getting married. It must have been done by word of mouth because there was no way of knowing necessarily what the ringing was for.
1: In a typical year, I don't know whether there is a typical year, but how many times were the bells rung again?
0: It varied with time, but essentially they were probably being rung somewhere between once every three days and once every four days throughout the year. So there was regular ringing for payment at least twice a week and sometimes more frequently than that. I mean, when they rang for the elections in 1807, they rang 33 times in 10 days at guinea time. Now, the interesting thing about that, of course, is that you needed people who were available to do that ringing. And it was clearly quite an onerous task to be a member of the Cambridge Jews because the way the system worked is they employed the steeplekeeper at Great St. Mary's essentially to act as their secretary or their paid employee drumming up business so if I wanted the bells to be rung I would go along to the steeplekeeper at the time and say can you ring for my son who's getting his degree this afternoon and the steeplekeeper would toll out in other words he'd ring a bell to warn the ringers around the town that they needed to be at the steeple within the hour and that they would then be ringing to be paid for something and it would then be on them to leave work or wherever they would do and to turn up. It probably sounds a bit like being a volunteer firefighter and then they'd ring and go away. Now, clearly, if you were going to be able to do that and if you didn't turn up, you got fined, you needed to have the kind of employment that meant you could down tools and go at any any moment. So we find an interesting collection of, of occupations among the people who are ringing because they were people who could leave work. They were self-employed small tradesmen or they were gentlemen of leisure who had enough money that they didn't need to have to work. So one of the things that I'm quite interested in is who these people were that were doing the ringing. And they're quite an interesting eclectic group of people. I think one of my favourite ones, although rather sad, is a chap called John Deeks. Now, there are records of John Deeks before the Cambridge Jews was formed in 1724. He was employed by the church, for example, to pick up shards of bell metal when the bells were recast in 1722. And he seems to have been a kind of of jack-of-all-trades labourer, getting any work that he could. He rang in the first peal that the Cambridge Jews rang in 1727. So he's obviously a reasonably good ringer. But he left the society about six years later, and I always wondered why. And then I discovered four newspaper reports over about 40 years, in each of which he's reported as having broken his leg. Oh, my goodness. The same leg. The first time he fell down a ladder while loading a ship with grain, and then at about 10-year intervals, then, the newspaper reports him breaking a leg again. And by the, the fourth time, he's become quite a notable character in Cambridge. But he was clearly, I guess, as a result of his injuries, unable to ring. So he, he leaves the Cambridge years. But it's interesting that the ringers obviously kept touch with the people who'd been member of the society and kept an eye out for them because there are various occasions later where they actually give him some money because he's in need. So they acted as a kind of pension service almost for some ringers. So he's at one end of the social scale. At the other end, we get people like Charles Mason, who was the professor of fossils at the university, and John Botel in the late 18th century, who was the university bookbinder. And he came from humble origins, but he, he developed quite a trade. And when he died, he left £7,000 to Adam Brooks Hospital in Cambridge for the building of a new wing. So we had the whole raft of people from the poorest of the poor to really the richest of the rich in Cambridge, all taking part in ringing during the 18th century.
1: Why did you choose Cambridge to research?
0: Yes, it's partly Cambridge is an obvious one because I live very close. It also has the best set of records for the thing I'm looking at, but it's also not just the records from the ringers it's also there's a rich collection of materials from the churches in the university whose accounts exist because the university paid for a lot of ringing events also the town corporations accounts show the things that they paid for and there's a pretty good collection of newspapers going back to the 1740s doesn't quite go back to the beginning of the period i'm interested in but so good collection of resources local interest for me and i suppose because i ring in cambridge it's the natural place to be interested in
1: what sort of coverage in
0: the papers did bell ringers get it depended what the ringers fancied telling them so the the reports of ringing in cambridge in the newspapers tend to be of two sorts if there was a major event going on like the coronation of a new king or whatever there'd often be kind of extended reports on what was happening in Cambridge to celebrate that event. And quite often it had mentioned whether the bells were ringing. And the same with major events at the university. If they were appointing a new chancellor, for example, there'd be huge interest in that. And there'd be people coming from all over the country to to take part in it. And there'd be extensive reports on that. And quite often it would comment on the bells ringing all day, not just at Great St Mary's, but across the town. So that's one thing. And then the ringers actually quite like to blow their own trumpets as well. So, when they rang peals or something that they were proud of, or they were invited to go and open a new ring of bells somewhere, which is something that happened quite regularly, certainly in the 18th century, they almost certainly submitted their own reports to the newspaper, and sometimes the newspapers would print them. And the interesting thing about them is that they never rang anything that wasn't perfect. If you read the reports, they were always the most fantastic performance, no mistakes absolutely regular rhythm and judged by expert hearers to be a prime example of the art of change ringing. So they like blowing their own trumpets, which makes it a bit difficult to know how good their ringing actually was. Just occasionally, you get a glimpse that it perhaps wasn't quite as good as they'd like you to think. When the Bells at Berris and Edmonds were opened in the 1790s, the Cambridge ringers were invited to go and ring them on the opening ring, and I think it's fairly clear that the bells turned out to be more difficult to ring than than you'd expect from a new ring of bells. But there were reports in the Berry newspapers afterwards that the ringing had been terrible and that the Cambridge News had not really been very good at all, to which they felt obliged to send a, a reply saying that it wasn't really their fault, it was the fact that they'd obliged lots of ringers from other places to ring with them rather than just sticking to their own band, so...
1: Oh, right.
0: (laughs) They were were very, very proud of their reputation and and went to great lengths to defend it.
1: Yes. You've described your PhD, obviously, is covering Cambridge. Just out of interest, do you have a feel for whether that pattern would have been the same around the country or or not?
0: I think there is evidence that certainly in large towns there may well have been a, a similar pattern. Research that's been done in Norwich, for example, shows that the ringers were regularly paid for ringing. But I don't think there's quite the same depth of sources there to be sure exactly how much they were paid. But I'd be surprised if it wasn't something similar. Cambridge is slightly unusual because the university was quite a big source of income for the ringers. And obviously, at the time, there were only two universities in the country. So it may have been similar in Oxford. But really what's needed is more research to see whether the things that I'm finding in Cambridge are replicated in, in, in other parts of the country. Maybe that's something I'll move on to next.
1: Yes, I was going to ask you, when are you expecting to finish and what do you plan to do next?
0: Well, I've got a deadline. I have to finish by July. And then the plan is to turn the research into a book, which may cover a longer period than the one my PhD is covering. 2024 will be the 300th anniversary of the formation of the Cambridge Youths. So there'll be some major celebrations in a few years. So I thought it'd be nice to have a book about the history of ringing Cambridge ready for that. So that's part of the plan. But the research has also made me realise that there are kind of huge areas of bell ringing history that are really under-researched. And if anybody listening to this fancies doing some research, I'd highly recommend it. We often hear about Belfry reform, as I talked about earlier, but actually there's been no serious research into Belfry reform or what it meant or why it happened. And maybe that's an area I might have another look at.
1: Can you just briefly describe what Belfry reform was?
0: Yes, I can try. So in the, about this 1840s, there began to be some concern that bell ringers were a rather disreputable group of people and they weren't ringing for church services and they were behaving badly and getting drunk. Now, this picture of bell ringers was largely kind of promoted by a relatively small number of Church of England clergymen who were also ringers. So it's difficult to know whether their assessment of what it was like was really very accurate. But what they tried to do was to reorganise bands so that they had a more direct connection to the service of the church and they introduced rules for bands that involved them, you know, no swearing, no drinking and, and, and so on. And it also indirectly led to the formation of a lot of the county and diocesan associations of ringers from the 1860s onwards most of them had as part of their aims Belfry reform to try and improve the standing of the ringers and to make ringing more part of the church. What's difficult to know is whether or not the publicity that this relatively small group of people got was actually an accurate reflection of what was happening. And from my point of view, whether anything really changed as a result. There was a lot of talk about Belfry reform it's not always entirely clear that anything much changed.
1: Apart from the towers that you regularly ring at, what's your favourite ring of bells and why?
0: Well, this is a difficult one. There are so many nice rings of bells, but I suppose you always have to have a a, a kind of soft spot for the tower you rang at. So, so I suppose I'd have to plump for Danbury in Essex where I learnt to ring.
1: And what remarkable things happened to you that wouldn't have happened if you hadn't taken up bell ringing?
0: <laughs> I think my whole life would have been different. I certainly wouldn't have met Leslie. your wife. Yeah, that's probably the defining moment in my ringing career. So I think everything, everything flows from that. We wouldn't, we wouldn't have met apart from ringing, and I'm sure that's true of lots of other people who, are, who take part in ringing as well.
1: Thank you to my guest, Gareth Davies, for a fascinating insight into his PhD research on how important it was for the Cambridge Ringers to get paid. So what do you think about this podcast? It would be great if you could answer the short survey. It's at bit.ly forward slash fwb twenty twenty fwb stands for fun with bells so that's bit.ly forward slash fwb 2020 to help us know what we're doing right and to let us know if you have any ideas on what we could do differently in the future more information photographs and links can be found in our show notes at www.funwithbells.com i'm kathy booth this podcast was put together by a team Special thanks go to Anne Tansley-Thomas and John Gwyn, Leslie Belcher, Sue Hall, Nick Boyd and the Society of Cambridge Youth for the recording of their ringing. There are openings for other roles within the production team. Contact me at funwithbellspodcast at gmail.com if you're interested. If you're in Britain and are interested in learning to ring, then please go to ringingteachers.org or for handbell ringers, hrgb.org.uk. Both websites have links to help you get started. Follow me on Twitter and Facebook at Fun With Bells. Don't forget to tell others that you can listen to this podcast for free. It's available from any podcast directory or from the website funwithbells.com. <laughs>